0: Let's pray together, please. Our Heavenly Father, we tremble before your holy word, as the prophet Isaiah said long ago. We are so thankful that you've not left us in darkness. We confess that without these words and this sacred book, that we would be lost. We would not know you. We would not know how to be saved. We would not understand our plight. We would not know who Jesus is. The thanks be to your holy name that you have spoken to us and given us these words. Help us understand them to receive their truth with faith and love. Lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. <coughs> Verses 1 through 12. <coughs> Matthew chapter 2. Verses 1 through 12. Matthew 2, 1 through 12. This is God's work. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, "In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod secretly called the magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them, until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. May God bless the reading of his holy word. One of the primary burdens of Matthew's gospel is to show that Jesus Christ, all the details of his coming, his birth, his life, his ministry, his crosswork redemption of his people, that that's the major subject of the whole Old Testament. Over and over again, Matthew will quote from the Old Testament saying, thus it was fulfilled. He, he narrates another event of Jesus's life. Thus it was fulfilled. Thus it was fulfilled, which was spoken by this prophet or that Old Testament author. During the 40 days that Jesus spent on earth after his resurrection, he expounded and explained what was written in Moses, that's the first five books of the Bible, the prophets, everything else, and the Psalms about him to his disciples. He he taught them how to understand the Old Testament in a way that it showed he was coming. He explained that to them. From Jesus's genealogy there in in Matthew, the, the New Testament begins with the book of the genealogy of the coming of Christ. And if you look carefully at that genealogy, there's some pretty interesting people included in that genealogy. There's people guilty of child murder, people guilty of incest, adultery, deception, sorcery, witchcraft, and idolatry are are in that genealogy of the Lord. From his genealogy to the circumstances of his birth, Jesus humbled himself voluntarily to accomplish the great mission as announced by the angel to Joseph in his dream. Remember, Joseph was going to divorce Mary because she was pregnant and he's troubled about this and he's wanting to find a way to do it secretly and then an angel comes and says joseph don't be afraid to take mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is of the holy spirit and that angel told joseph and you shall call his name jesus for he will save his people from their sins you No, know, satan followed this genealogical line down to the birth of christ all the way through history satan is very close to everything going on in scripture. Very close to that genealogy, all the way down, trying everything he can to try to cut off this seed of the woman, to try to stop the birth of the savior. Satan's greatest interest was in the man, Jesus Christ, and trying to kill him, trying to make sure he wasn't born into the world. It's very important that people know this. Sony do not understand the differences between the truth and all of its competitors. Buddhism. Man's religion of Buddhism can stand without its founder. It doesn't need Siddhartha Gautama to be what it is. Islam can be what it is without Muhammad. Confucianism can be what it is without Confucius. Such is the nature of all of man's religions. Everything that man makes up is always going to be the same. They're all religions of ethics. They're all religions of works righteousness and Self-salvation. They don't look for a savior. They don't look for a substitute to do it all for us. You know, the devil never concerned himself with bringing about the death of any of the founders of man's religions. He didn't care. If anything, he would try to help and protect those individuals. But when it came to the coming of this one, of the seed of the woman, the savior of the world... Remember what God promised Adam and Eve and the serpent himself in the Garden of Eden right after the fall happened. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head. In other words, he's gonna inflict a fatal wound on you, Satan, and you shall bruise his heel. That hatred that Satan has towards Jesus and that Satan's disciples have towards the church today, its a hatred with the desire to kill. Satan's very existence was devoted to, by his own, to his own twisted desire to kill the seed of the woman, to make sure that this child would not be born into the world. Revelation 12 describes human history in this way. Listen, Revelation 12:1. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars, Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon, listen, and the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as he was born. To devour the child as soon as he was born. That's why the devil is all the way through redemptive history. Killing and murdering. Trying to stop it. Cain, What does Cain do? Cain kills his brother. For no other reason than that Abel's works were righteous and Cain's were not. This murderous desire of the devil and of the devil's agents against God's promised redeemer and against God's people in general is seen all the way through biblical history. You follow that genealogy at the beginning of Matthew. There are rivers of innocent blood all the way to the coming of Christ. Because the dragon is always waiting. When is he going to be born? I've got to stop this. What did Pharaoh order with all those male children there in Israel? Kill them. Kill them all. Did did Pharaoh have any idea he was an agent of Satan? No, they never do. They never know that. They've been taken captive by him to do his will. With full intention to murder, what does King Saul do to David? Over and over again, he throws spears at him to pin him to the wall to try to kill him. If that had worked, no savior. No savior. Haman plotted to annihilate the Jews down to the last living one. there in the province of Persia in the book of Esther. Herod's massacre of the innocent children there in Bethlehem and all of its districts from two years old and under. Can you imagine anything worse than that? What's Herod doing? He's doing the work of Satan trying to stop this. We've got to kill the child before he comes into the world. Why this murderous rage against the genealogical line of the Messiah? Because the last thing Satan wanted him was to have his head crushed. And he knows that when the devil, when the Messiah comes, the devil's had it. He knows it's over. 1 John 3, 8. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the, begin, from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he would destroy the works of the devil. And Satan knew this all too well. And thus, the royal line to the Messiah has always attracted his murderous attention, as has the faithful Christian church in this world attracted his attention. I would ask, what religious figure ever attracted this kind of reckless, murderous hate from the Prince of Darkness? None. If anything, Satan would want to help and nurture the purveyors of false religions, not kill them as soon as they're born. Notice after this episode in verses 13 through 15, Joseph and Mary and Jesus flee to Egypt. In the area where Jesus was born, we find every male child being put to death. Isn't that amazing? Jesus is rejected. He's hated. He's marked for death by the world of unbelief. Even while he was but a very small infant, he was. This coming of Jesus into the world, it was the focus of Satan's activity in this world because of the importance of, of Jesus' person and work. That's why the devil focuses so much attention on this. Because if you boil all of man's religions and all of his thoughts about spiritual things, if you boil them all down to the base root, man and all of his creative glory has come up really with only one religion. Man's false religions are all the same. And you can summarize them with one word, I. What do all the religions of the world teach? They are all the same. They all teach I. I live a good life, I keep the commandments, I pray, I do this, I'm kind to my neighbor, I don't do that. False religions are always merely a way of life, and nothing more. Be good, and all will be well with you. Be nice, and all will be well with you. And over against all of man's religions that are summarized by that one word, I, over against that you have the cross. Jesus lived a perfect life as my substitute. Jesus died the curse of death of the cross as my substitute. Jesus saves his people from their sins and justifies them before God's law by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of his satisfaction and his perfect righteousness alone. Satan Satan never gave another thought about any of the founders of the religions of I because none of those men could have crushed his head. None of them could have destroyed his works. Only this particular baby, Jesus, could do it. And herein is the absolute uniqueness of the truth. There are so many today who are ignorant, ignorant of the nuts and bolts of comparative religions. They actually think that Islam is similar to Christianity. It's not. Judaism is similar to Christianity. No, it's not. Hinduism is similar to Christianity. No, it's not. There really are no fundamental similarities between the truth and all of its competitors. Much could be said about this, but here's the most important difference between Christianity and Hinduism, Christianity and New Ageism, Christianity and Buddhism, Mormonism, Islam, and all the rest. Here's the main difference. You all ready? All of man's religions can survive and stay intact without their founders. All of them can. None of them need their founders, except the truth. Christianity is entirely different from this in that at its heart, it is Jesus Christ. Jesus and what he did is the heart and soul of Christianity. Without Jesus, without the virgin birth of Jesus, without his life of perfect righteous obedience to the law of God that all of us break every day, without his death on the cross, without his resurrection, there is no Christian faith. And indeed, there would be no expectation of eternal life after death either. Without Jesus, there is no forgiveness. There is no perfect righteousness, which can be imputed into our account before the judgment of God. Man's religions all teach, do these things, say these things, face this direction when you pray. Don't do these things and all will be well with you. The word of God teaches that you're incapable of doing anything. To make anything well with you in God. And therefore, you must believe that this particular man, the God-man Jesus Christ, has done all of it for you. In your behalf, in your place, as your substitute. And therefore, in Satan's mind, it is Jesus himself who must be destroyed. And that's why intrigue and scheming and murder and plots and rivers of blood surround Jesus All the way down that genealogical line and even right after he's born, two-year-old boys in a whole area are being killed. Man's false religions tell us, follow the teachings of of the founders. But it was Jesus himself who taught us to see him as the point of access to the Father. Jesus did have teachings and he did have doctrines that he wanted us to follow. And you know what the summation of those teachings and those doctrines are? He said, I am the way. Not my teachings, but I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. This is precisely why when you come to the holy books, so-called holy books of other religions, you typically find merely moral precepts and directions on what to do to end up in heaven or to end up in some sort of better place or to be reincarnated as something a little higher than a snail. When you open up the Word of God, you find right at the beginning a narrative of the fall of man, followed by the promise of a coming Savior who will rescue us from our sinful rebellion. The gospel, the good news of which we speak, begins not with a detailed description of how we are to live and what we are to do if we would inherit eternal life in heaven, but rather a detailed description of the birth of someone. Isn't that amazing? That's so different. From all of man's religions. You want to know, what are the tenets of Buddhism? What are the tenets of Islam? What are the tenets of of all of man's religions? Do this, do that, say this, say that, face this direction when you do this, go to this place at a certain time of year, go do this, go do do that, don't drink this, don't eat that. In scripture, you get the, the account of someone's birth. Why this heavy emphasis on Jesus? Why is he everything to us? Because Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. The second person of God, the Holy Trinity, added to himself a human nature. The great doctrines of the Christian faith, they're absolutely inseparable from the historical facts about Jesus. The facts about his virginal conception and birth, his perfect life of law-keeping, his substitutionary death on the cross for his people, his bodily resurrection from the dead, his present intercession in heaven for us, and praise God, his ongoing work to this day of building and sanctifying his church. Since this divine incarnation of God in Christ 2,000 years ago, the world and the history of the world have never been the same. To this very moment, the clarion call of the word of God to all mankind to deal with Jesus Christ, listen, it still divides men from men to this day along a very clear line. Those who believe in Christ and follow him as their Lord and Savior and those whose hatred burns against him and his followers. He still divides people to this day. People might hear that and think, man, is that really what Christianity in its biblical pure form does? It, it, it divides people? It ruins their Christmas? It divides families? Yeah, it does. It polarizes people? Yes, it does. You're either for him or you're against him. He either, either is the one you have the highest loyalty to or you don't. You either serve yourself and sin or him. No one is able to serve two masters, he said. In Luke twelve fifty one. do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. The Jesus of progressivism, the Jesus of liberal Christianity is not the true biblical Jesus. He is a figment of the modern imagination. I have told many, many people through the years that the Jesus of liberalism would never have been crucified. Because he, like them, would have believed in nothing and stood for nothing. Except the grand truth that it's a sin to have convictions about anything. In this passage, the division Jesus speaks of in Luke twelve fifty one is plainly in view. You have the wise men from the east. Isn't this ironic? The wise men from the east. These pagans are excited to greet, to greet the, the divine savior. And then you have Herod that wants to kill him. You know, this murderous division is just left out of the nativity scenes and everything else. And you're going to see why all those are totally inaccurate here as we go through the passage. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. The two camps search for Jesus. Verses 1 and 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And notice verse 1 says, after Jesus was born, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. Now, there's very little that we actually know for sure about who these men were. And there's no end of speculation about it. We also don't know how many there were. Typically, people will say there was three because there were three gifts. But all we know is that it's plural. There could have been two. There could have been 15. Could have been 20 for all we know. The the Greek term magoi simply refers to, quote, a wise man and priest who was an expert in astrology, interpretation of dreams and various other occult arts. Not really very good candidates for like wanting to welcome Jesus into the world, would you think? And yet they did. Notice in verse two, they're looking in Jerusalem for the child Jesus to worship him. They're not in Bethlehem yet. They are not in Bethlehem yet. It seems that the star that they were following had somehow disappeared for the time being. It brought them to Jerusalem, and then it's gone. And therefore, they're asking around among the people, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Isn't it an incredible thing that these men who are being supernaturally led by the divine hand of God, they identify Jesus as the king of the Jews. The king of the Jews. And the only other one in the Gospels that does that is Pilate. Who has it inscribed on his cross? So the Magi and Pilate know who he is. Pilate, for very different reasons, is really just mocking him. But those are the only two that identify him as the King of the Jews. Herod hears that they're looking for a newborn child, and Herod hears and they're calling they're calling this child the King of the Jews, and that enrages them. And there's much speculation as to why they were saying that in verse two. Why why do they know to call him the King of the Jews? But God revealed this to them somehow. We don't know exactly how, but somehow they knew that this child was the king of the Jews. The main point in their search for this king is in Herod's territory. That gets back to Herod's ear to the grapevine. Hey, there's there's these magi, these wise men from the east. They're walking all over town asking about where this child is, this king of the Jews. Okay, so here's Herod's reaction. Look at verses three through eight. When Herod the king heard this, He was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written in the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem. Isn't that ironic? How did the Magi find out that Jesus is in Bethlehem? From Herod, who learned it from the council. And he says at the end of verse eight, go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. Now the term troubled that's used there, you see that in verse three? When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Notice who else is troubled? The whole city's troubled. That means that term that's used there to cause inward turmoil, to stir up, disturb, or unsettle. It's not just Herod, but all Jerusalem is also troubled. Herod's reason for being troubled is very different from Jerusalem's reason for being troubled. Herod, this guy, had a history of committing atrocities against the people. Of Jerusalem, And the inhabitants of Jerusalem had learned when Herod is agitated, things tend not to go very well for us. And Josephus describes this Herod, Herod the Great, as capable, crafty, and cruel. He was utterly ruthless towards anyone that could conceivably threaten his power. And Herod fought and schemed and plotted hard to gain that position that he had. A lot of people died for him to get that position. And as he got older, his insanity, his paranoia, his bloodthirstiness it simply grew worse toward any and all potential competitors. But when Herod realizes that the wise men had found Jesus, but they don't report to Herod his location, he goes into a rage. You see it in verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. What a horrendous crime that was. Herod meets with the entire Sanhedrin. You see it in verse four there? Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquires of them where the Messiah was to be born. And the prophecy is read to him from Micah, 5 verse 2, and they answer him in verses 5 and 6. You see it? They said to him in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what had been written by the prophet, and you Bethlehem in the land of Judah are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So a ruler is going to come out of Bethlehem. Now is Herod seeking Jesus? Yes, but why? He wants to kill him. Herod wants to kill this child. And here we see Herod as an agent of Satan, Revelation 12:4, and the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Herod, we know, he never finds Jesus. In fact, we know that Herod dies. this Herod dies without ever having seen him. Because once Herod dies, then Jesus and Mary and Joseph, they come out of Egypt, uh, really mimicking Israel's movements. Remember that? out of Egypt, I called my son. it says to fulfill that in Matthew's gospel. We also know that Herod's despicable efforts to exterminate him are thwarted. I love the way that God thwarts the plans of kings. A single sentence from an angel to Joseph in a dream. He just tells him, and he saves his life. This is no doubt exactly the kind of thing that God had in mind when he inspired Psalm 2. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Messiah saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Or in Herod's case, let's go kill him. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. God finds man's attempts to snuff out the church, to destroy the church and to destroy Christ. He finds it funny. The Lord shall hold them in derision. I want to say by way of application, we live in weird times, really strange times in this country. I just want to remind you how futile is the strength and the power of earthly kings in the sight of God earthly power prestige money are so often what fallen man wants most yet nothing could be more fleeting and foolish for men to desire or to put their trust in a man could acquire everything he desires and will still die of some common ailment which millions of other people have succumbed to in the past why are we so foolish to value so highly and to pursue with such vigor that which gives no peace and no security in this life and is of no value in the next. The wise men from the East, they understood what was really valuable and they sought it out with all their might. Herod places no value on the wisdom of God found in God's word. He has no desire to greet and welcome the king of kings. He has no need for deliverance and salvation that he can perceive. He doesn't even know that there is a God of wrath over him. He doesn't care. He wants power for a few more years. He wants only to eliminate a potential rival for earthly power. He was truly a fool. Truly a fool. Psalm 4, verse 2, listen. How long, O you sons of men, will you turn my glory to shame? How long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? Did you know one of the greatest preachers in the entire history of Christianity, John Chrysostom, a man whose writings encompass I think it's seven volumes he said, if he could have one text and preach one sermon to the world, it'd be Psalm 4, verse 2. How long, O you sons of men, will you turn my glory to shame? How long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? Why do people do this? 2 Corinthians four, eighteen: For the things which are seen are temporary. The troubles you brought in here are temporary. But the things which are not seen are eternal. Value the things that matter most in life. Herod is obsessed with that which is temporary. He wants power. He wants title. He wants prestige, pleasure. And apparently has very little concern at all for eternal matters. He's willing to lie, to murder a whole area of little boys, two years old and under. And even he pretends to be spiritual. He pretends to care about spiritual things. Yes, let me know where he is so I can come and worship him too. Look at verses 9 through 12. When they heard the king, the magi, when the magi heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshiped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then... Being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. You know, initially the star, the star the wise men were following, it got them as far as Jerusalem. And it's amazing. I mean, this is God laughing at man. Where do they get directions on where to go next? From Herod, the guy that wants to kill Jesus. And the star apparently is gone. They don't know where to go next. Well, where is he? Where is he? Where is he? And on their way, heading towards Bethlehem, the star reappears. The wise men, they follow it. Only after Herod sends them off to Bethlehem, because of Micah's prophecy, the star appears again. Notice verses 9 and 10 again. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. It seems clear that the star disappeared, and now it's, it's reappeared. And it's leading them right to the exact spot where Jesus is. Why was this guidance from a star needed like this? Because trying to find an unknown child in an unknown location in an unknown city would have been next to impossible without some kind of precise navigation. God gave it to them, to these magi. In verse 11, notice, they're not in a stable. They're not in a stable, not at an inn. Jesus is not in a manger. What does it say in verse 11? You see it? When they had come to the house. Clearly, this is a little while after Jesus' birth. Most depictions of Christ's nativity have the magi from Matthew 2 here and the shepherds from the nearby fields to the inn where Jesus was born as recorded in Luke's account. All there together with farm animals nearby. And you need to know they were not there together. Okay, there's no shepherds, there's no manger, there's no inn here. This is later. Verse 11 says, after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother and they fell to the ground and worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, there's a lot that's been written about what each of these means. I'll just share one. It's kind of speculative, but you can see some, some truth in this, I think. Some commentators see the gold as representing Christ's kingship, since gold tribute is paid to earthly kings constantly throughout Scripture. Frankincense symbolizes Christ's deity since God was worshiped via the incense there in the tabernacle in the temple. And then myrrh, you know what myrrh was used for? That's one of the spices that they put on dead bodies. Strange gift. (laughs) Like that's a little morbid, isn't it? You bring me a bunch of myrrh. But what was that symbolizing? He was gonna die. He's the king of the universe. He's the king of the universe. He's God, but he's also gonna die. There's no doubt that during his meeting with the wise men, Herod knew. Herod knew that these wise men, these magi, they, they had every intention of acknowledging this child to be the king of the Jews, and, and they want to worship him. They, they realize there's much more here than simply the birth of an earthly king. They know there's something divine about this child. They want to worship him. Why else would he, uh, Herod have said to them in verse 8? You see verse 8? When you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. So the magi told Herod, We're going to go worship him. And that made Herod even more angry. Worship him? Well, let me know where he is so I can come worship him too. And Herod sees, he he knows the Magi see this child as no mere earthly king. He's a divine king. And that word translated worship, that I may worship him, that's the technical word for the worship that's given only to God. And, And Herod knew that. There could be no doubt Herod, he would have had those wise men executed in the blink of an eye if they had come back to him. And revealed Jesus' location. And then he would have gone over to where Jesus was. And had Jesus, Joseph, Mary, all of them put to death. Here again, God towards Herod. By warning the wise men in a dream. Men rage against God. Men, men rage against the church. False teachers rage against true teachers. And God laughs at them. Men build their towers. They try to consolidate their power. Try to make a name for themselves. But men's empires turn out to be a little stronger then a Jenga tower in the face of a stiff breeze. and all that wind was blowing, that's the image I was thinking about trying to play Jenga out there would have been impossible. But that's the strength of men's towers. He just goes, and they're gone. They build their towers, God knocks them over. The key difference between the two parties here, Herod and the wise men, one loves Jesus and the other loves the world. Hates Jesus. I love the writings of John. 1 John, is such a simple statement. Listen, 1 John 2, 15, here's a commandment. Do not love the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Why does Herod hate Jesus? Why does he want him killed? And why does he want anyone loyal to him killed? Because he loves the world. First John 2, 16, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not of the Father, it's of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. What a contrast between the two camps. There's one who loves the world, Herod, and another group that does the will of God and loves the Lord. Which one are you? Everyone in this room one or the other what's definitional to your existence what's the most important thing to you is it jesus or the world is it christ honoring christ or is it the worldly things you desire the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes the pride of life you know christians struggle with worldliness the church has struggled with worldliness if you read your old testament what is israel constantly struggling with wanting to take on the attributes of its pagan neighbors. You know, long ago, there's a really good theologian named R.B. Kuyper. It's not not Abraham Kuyper. It's R.B. Kuyper. He was a professor at Westminster Seminary back in the 1950s. And he wrote a book called The Glorious Body of Christ. And the introduction of that book is worth getting the book for. The whole book is outstanding. But he lists three things that he sees as a major problem facing the church in his day. In 1951, He said, one of the major problems of the church is worldliness, worldliness. And he wrote this, how true is the oft-repeated indictment of church members that they can hardly be distinguished from the men and women of the world. The most outstanding sin of ancient Israel was that instead of upholding its distinctiveness as Jehovah's chosen people, it was ever and anon imitating its heathen neighbors. That sin is rampant, in the church today. I just want to remind myself, and remind all of you, and the world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. So I want to ask you, who is Jesus to you? Now, I've asked that question to a lot more people when I was in the corporate world. So many think it's a viable option to say, hey, I've got nothing against Jesus. I got nothing against Jesus. He was, a, he was a profound teacher, seemed like a really good man. I got nothing against him. Please hear me. If you don't believe in him as the son of God and as your savior from sin, you have everything against him. Whether you see it or not, you are against him. You either have to believe what he said and everything he said. And everything his word says about him, or you need to write him off as the greatest deceiver in the history of the world. A good moral teacher? A good moral teacher? What good moral teachers ever claimed to be God? What good moral teachers ever accepted worship? What good moral teachers ever claimed to be the son of God? What good moral teachers ever said that no one could have eternal life except from his gracious hand as a free gift? You must be for Jesus and believe in him or reject him as a liar and a lunatic. And it's my prayer that you will see you are a sinner who falls short of God's glory and that your only hope is to trust in the loving kindness of God that endures forever, to trust in Jesus' death on the cross, to pay the punishment of your sin against God and that his resurrection from the dead conquered death itself for you and that Jesus' is. Perfect righteousness is the only garment that you can wear to the final judgment. Please believe me when I tell you that the guilt that your conscience pricks you with, that's God telling you that you will be summoned forth before him on the day of judgment. You and I will appear before God on that day of judgment. And you have to appear there with a perfect righteousness covering you. And there's only one who can give it to you and it's not Muhammad, and it's not Joseph Smith, and it's not Siddhartha Gautama, and it's not a Hindu guru. There's only one person who can give that to you. And what's so amazing is that he only gives it freely. Freely, as a love gift to all who see their sin, repent of it, and put their lot upon him alone and cast themselves on him alone and trust only in his righteousness and his mercy. There's only one person that can give it to you. Jesus of Nazareth the King of the Jews. So I say, repent, let go of the sin that you're serving and put your hope of entering heaven into Jesus's holy hands. Let's pray. Gracious Lord and God, we thank you for the gospel of your free grace in Christ. Thank you that Jesus loved us and gave himself for us. I pray if there are any here who are not yet born again by your Holy Spirit that today would be the day of salvation, that the scales would fall from their eyes, that they would see themselves as sinners but recognize the grace and the love and the mercy of Christ is greater than all our sin and that you are willing to all that put their faith in you to save them, to run down the road like the father with the prodigal to wrap him up in that best robe of Christ's righteousness and to restore him immediately to the position of a son to be in his family for the rest of eternity. We pray that you bless us as we go our separate ways. Please keep us safe. Bring us back here together this evening. And we give you all the praise and all the glory for our salvation in Christ's name. Amen.